Here we go. Folks, this is your host Cameron Ivy of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Jeff, Cameron, how are you, sir? Good. How about you? You know, could be worse. <laughs> it's it's Friday, so I am excited. We're almost over. Yeah, we finally got you on. Appreciate the patience, and sometimes I get some of those emails lost in the shuffle when it comes to actual my actual job. So I apologize. Hey, we've all got day jobs, right? Yeah, well, I would love for this to be my day job. So <laughs> maybe one day. Yeah, it's the goal. Well, it could be your day job. It seems like it is at times, right? Yeah, for to sure. The rest, to the rest of us, it seems like it is. <laughs> I wish. I wish it was. <laughs> I always like the busy jobs because at least you uh, get through your day fast, right? It does seem like that. And I think the work from home also helps because it allows me to, you know, if I don't have a, a meeting or anything with a, a client, um, I just, I'll I'll get up and I'll go play with my son or or help any way that I can, but it seems like I'm kind of strapped to this thing almost most of the day. I tell you what, it took me a long time to get used to the work at home thing and, and become productive. Yeah. It's a, it's been a, a pretty hard adjustment to be honest, just with, cause it can be a little more distracting with, you know, a two-year-old and. Yeah. I imagine I don't even have those kinds of distractions. I got a cat, but that's about it. <laughs> He's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah my, my wife's cat he's like uh he's probably like 15 or 16 and he's he's diabetic so we have to give him insulin twice a day so oh, once okay. the morning once at night and he's he's got this like meow where he he roams the halls and he does like a very loud <laughs> and he'll usually do that when i'm in the middle of a call and it's it's very entertaining for <laughs> the people on the call but, uh, you really shouldn't talk about Really shouldn't talk about your father-in-law like that at all. Just <laughs> not nice. Uh, he had it coming, so it's not blood, so whatever. Well, it's fair. Jeff, how are you there? I'm good. How about you? I'm well, thank you. Very well. A pleasure to virtually meet you a bit yeah. more. Good to meet you. I feel like I already know you guys. I know. I'm thinking the same thing. Like I feel like I know Jeff already. Like we go way back. We go. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, by the way, random. I don't know if you, Jeff, if you drink these, but I know Gabe does. Uh, GT's kombucha. First time I've had the strawberry lemonade. Wow. I had it this week. It's new. It's amazing. <laughs> it's fabulous. <laughs> it's probably the best tasting one besides the uh, watermelon. In my I had, well, the mango is nice. pretty darn good too, to be honest. The mango, <laughs> the rose, the, the rose is... I haven't had the mango. Where can, where can you find it? Because this one I found at um, at Whole Foods. Whole Foods. Whole Foods usually has it. Um, Rolling Oats. Rolling Oats has a huge selection. No idea what that is. 
Yeah, it's a little place over. It's near headquarters. It's uh, okay. a half a mile away from headquarters. Next time you're in the office, we'll take you out and, and we'll make sure we, we get you some. Okay. <clears throat> I don't do the kombucha, but I do uh, fresh uh, fresh squeezed uh, fruit juice and, uh, and vegetable juice every day. Oh, wow. Do you have like a juicer? I don't. I, I, I pay and uh, get them in the little bottles. So uh, <laughs> a couple different versions, Suja and, and Arden, I think of the okay. ends. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. This is honestly, it's become one of these teas because it's, it's, it's healthy, but it also, it's got a little bit of sugar in it, but it's natural. Not a lot. Um, yeah. Not a lot, but it's, it's kind of like a nice treat and it kind of, if you're hungry, it kind of fills you up too. And it's, it's, it's thing. good I don't for your gut. Soda and I don't drink any other juice. So nope. I might have, one and a half bottle of those all day, like maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, it's got natural uh, alcohol in it, so <laughs> it's. <laughs> That's why you like it. <laughs> it's like one percent ABV. You're gonna get right. sick before you get a buzz. No, it's it's basically nothing, but it's, it's fun though. So Jeff, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, excited welcome to have the show. We we really appreciate uh, all the love that you give and really. Uh, happy that you you enjoyed the show too and did you did you please tell me you caught the end of uh of that last show where i i plugged in when when gabe was shouting out to you i'm not sure if you made it to that part i didn't is it in the very last show most recent one it's yeah. in the luca show luca oh yeah 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 i did get that one yeah yeah so you put a little extra cowbell yeah. in there for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i appreciated that <laughs> I listened to the Lucas show. I actually almost got to the 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 end of the last one too. Um, yeah, that was a long one. We we gotta. I don't know. I don't know what we gotta do. Because the thing is, when we, when we've got a guest on and we're talking, we we don't see a good reason to naturally cut it off. Like why we're having a good conversation. Let's keep having a conversation. The show, as everyone knows, you know, we try to keep it conversational. If anything, maybe I say stay at one fifteen. No more than that. Yeah, ever. maybe we start putting some things in, like an extra cut or something like that. Right? Like who knows? Maybe. Yeah. Um, we'll see if we get some feedback from the users and they want us to keep it or, or not. Not. But not. but you know they don't. It doesn't need to be a specific time. I mean, there's going to be. Not. We obviously have had short ones, but the long ones are good too because, it, you know. When people, if they're, you know, the active listeners, if they don't, I, I, the way I listen to a podcast is I'll listen just in like every time I jump in my car, I just continue to that episode. Cool. So having long episodes doesn't really matter in, in my opinion, but I think it's better just. I agree. I let's, let's start with a couple of things. Thing number one, thank you very much, not just for, you know, the support of the show, but for your support of the privacy community and the privacy podcast community. I genuinely and honestly believe that without some of the work you've been doing, some of the other great shows out there really wouldn't kind of get some of the attention they are. And we have had the opportunity ourselves to listen to some really awesome guests, learn and, and network with some really awesome uh, hosts as well, too. So thank you very much for that. Well, I appreciate uh, the props. Um, you know, you guys have the great content. I'm just, you know, pushing stuff that, that I like. Um, you know, it, it's been fun to, to organize this stuff and, <laughs> It is really truly amazing how many privacy-related podcasts are out there, right? I'm almost approaching a hundred different podcasts now in that database. Wow! Yeah, I mean, not all of them are 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 focused entirely on on privacy. There's probably only maybe thirty or forty that I would say are are really generally focused on on data privacy, but a lot of them are really interesting because they touch on privacy so closely. And so I got them in the database. You can see that, that, that transition because 
uh, last time that I went to an event and Gabe was there as well, was at the RSA, uh, not this past Jan, uh, February, but last February, right when the pandemic kind of hit us all. Um, we, we saw like a rise in, in privacy companies too. Um, so, I mean, that's not surprising at all. And it's, it's pretty exciting because now, like Gabe was saying, I mean, it seems like we've kind of, kind of almost built, you've, you've kind of structured a little community, even though some of the people we already knew each other, which is great because we've had some of them on as guests and some of them like data, uh, uh, data diva, she started her podcast and now she's, I mean, she's awesome. And there's just so many awesome people that are in this space. Yeah. We need to get her back. That would be fun. We, we want to do a panel. We want to do many panels, uh, but those are hard to schedule. That should be the next mini panel. just like a, a reunion. Like yeah. A reunion show. Anyone that's been on the show that has their own privacy podcast and just kind of. <laughs> the podcast of podcasters. <laughs> podcast of podcasters. That would be good. Awesome. Um, bear with me. I am apparently not prepared. It's okay. But that's how I roll. <laughs> that's, right. that's the secret. Just like the Hulk, he's always angry. I'm always not prepared. <laughs> oh, actually, there is one thing, guys. I may pop these um, blue blockers on. I'll look like a dork, but uh, it keeps me from getting a headache. No worries. Whatever you got to do. Oh. I mean, Cam's got a baby Yoda behind him. I think, I think you're safe. <laughs> you have you. You need to get a – do you not have the prescription kind? Uh, it has some blue blocker on it, on my, on my prescriptions, but this helps a little more. Really? I generally keep my lights down a little bit lower, but I turn them up so that, well, I guess so you can get a better picture of my face and, and then I put the door glasses on. So, but if you want to take pictures, you know, I'll take them off. So let me know, you know. <laughs> oh, there you go. I'll take that picture. Cause we're all smiling. <laughs> Simple. So you can put them back on. I won't, I won't take one with those glasses on if you don't, all right. if you don't want me to. Yeah. Unless we get a good laugh at the end, which I'm sure we will. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're gonna, if, it, if you want to take a picture of this, tell people that I'm wearing the dark glasses. <laughs> you know, I think you might be a bit self-conscious about it, but it looks it looks fine. Yeah, it's, it's not that big of a deal. No, not even a little bit. I was gonna say I'm pretty sure we'll make you laugh so hard that they'll probably just knock off that, that first layer of glasses. You don't even have to worry about it for that section. So. <laughs> Or we could do a meme where I could take, you know, one pair off and then another pair off and another pair off. Right? Okay, yes. <laughs> What's that? What does that mean from again? Deal with the deal with like, it meme. Know your meme. Deal with it. Just, it just like puts it on repeat. Like he's... <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy, Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey. And with me, as always, you didn't think I was going to go there, did you? Uh, Gabe Gums. He's... Uh, my partner in crime, he's the guru in the network and in in all the things, security, privacy. Uh, Gabe, how you doing? Well, we're recording on a Friday this time, so I'm all right. Yes, yes we, we are. are. All right. good, old, good old Friday is how the kids say it. That's right. Um, but not only is it Friday, we also have a special guest, uh, Mr. Jeff Jokish. He's the data privacy researcher, privacy plan. Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, really great to be here. How are you guys doing? How are you, sir? How are you doing? How are you doing? <clears throat> I'm wonderful on a Friday. Getting, so the, getting the week done. Had a, had a really wonderful week, so glad to be here and talking with you. I wanted to open the show. We typically open the show with, Cam opens the show with a question, but I, I wanted to open the show, and I think Cam, Cam's with me on this one, by just first saying thank you 
from us and from the rest of the community for what you've been doing for the privacy community. You've been you've been doing yeoman's work, raising awareness, uh, promoting some of the other shows out there. Uh, we have personally learned so much from a number of those other shows and, and that they even exist and so forth. So we just wanted to first tell you thank you very much for everything you're doing out there for everyone in the privacy community. Uh, and then, you know, we'll start the show as we normally do. If, if you would, for our listeners, tell us about yourself. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I appreciate the props. Uh, you know, the, uh, the the privacy podcast database that I've put together has been uh, a lot of fun. And, uh, and I enjoy uh, promoting your content and the content of other uh, privacy podcasters. Um, it's just sort of a, a work of joy. It sort of started out as a, a little bit of a hobby, but now it's turned into uh, a lot of fun and, and probably a lot of work too. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about that, but uh, my background is, uh, is sort of diverse. I think maybe I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, an early project that I worked on. After I graduated college, I ended up with uh, working for Citicorp for a while. And uh, this is a story I haven't told, I don't think, uh, for quite a long time. But I worked. Oh, on- I was just about to say first first year on on privacy, please. No, like <laughs> yeah. a, it's like breaking news first first time ever. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, just go with that. Breaking breaking news here on privacy, please. So so yeah, I was working um, uh, for Citicorp, and one of those first uh, assignments that I had was to work on uh, uh, in the mortgage division on a project called Mortgage Power Plus, and this was. Uh, really the first mortgage approval system that um, automated credit approval decisions for mortgages. And what we were doing was, was letting people get a mortgage approval in 15 minutes. And prior to that, and this was back in, uh, for, if I'm thinking about the right time frame, I think it was, this was like the, the early 90s. I'm hoping maybe it's like the late 80s. I'm forgetting. But um, before that, it took you 30 days to get a mortgage approval. I mean, most people probably don't remember that time period, right? But you put in a mortgage application and it literally took you 30 days before they told you whether you could get your house. Now, that's pretty foreign concept now. But back then, that was just standard practice uh, all across the world and especially here in the United States, right? So what we were rolling out was pretty revolutionary. Um, And this credit approval uh, the fact, the idea of getting a credit approval um, quickly wasn't necessarily novel. Citicorp and other banks were doing that for consumer credit, but not for something as large as a house, right? Yeah. And so we sort of developed this software uh, that would we put it on a laptop and cart it around to different mortgage brokers, and they would uh, connect it to the internet through a, a modem that was at like I don't know. Um, Forget it was an MNP MNP five encryption, you know, with like fifteen hundred baud modem that would, you know, welcome. You know, connect to the internet and do those kinds of transactions. It would it would pull a credit report and do some calculations and tell you yes or no you're going to get a mortgage or not, right? You've got mail, and uh, that was pretty pretty killer, you know, for its time. Um, so that was sort of interesting, and it was sort of my sort of first introduction to algorithms and and consumer data. And that was a project that was interesting to me because we had to sort of fundamentally change the way we were using consumer data. Because at that point, uh, all the data fields were actually just uh, day fields, right? And we had to now process things because if we didn't give you a 15-minute mortgage, right, we promised you a three-day turnaround, 
right? But it had to go through so many different groups and the file had to sort of move around so quickly. We had to start putting time date stamps instead of just date stamps on things. So we had to really redo the whole data configuration, right? Um, and based upon that, then I started working on the management information systems in the background. Um, so at that point, we didn't even have a mainframe for this stuff. So we were working on Teradata um, mainframe, which was like a bunch of 386 computers that were all linked up in parallel, right? And I was querying that with some SQL and pulling that stuff down and then running it that on PCs to run, run a bunch of reports. It's sort of a long-winded uh, explanation. But in order to do all this, I had a whole bunch of data on a whole bunch of disks, right? About eight years ago, uh, I was moving some files around. I found all of those records from wow. Citicorp in my garage wow. on, about, on about 100 floppy disks, right? And I ended up degaussing them and throwing them away, right? But that was a data breach. It's all part of the plan. Right? And... I was thinking a lot about that, right? Um, and it reminded me of when you guys were talking about all the S3 buckets that are unsecured right. sitting out there in the cloud, right? And I think it's really sort of appropriate and it's sort of a similar situation because I think a lot of those buckets get left up there because of situations sort of like that, right? You get some guy who has a project, right? Maybe they're in marketing research, maybe they're in something else, maybe they're working for the CEO or they're working for some department and they've got a project. They need to do some reporting, they got to do some special project. And so they grab a bunch of data and they start processing it and then they forget about it, right? They get moved to another department, they get promoted, they get fired, whatever. And that data just gets left sitting out there right? Whether it's in the cloud or in somebody's garage or whatever, right? That's why all of this structured or unstructured data gets left in places that people forget about. It's not that the organization is necessarily intentionally doing something stupid, right? It's that they've got an urgent need to do some reporting or do some kind of special project. So they set something up. They don't think that they're going to be using necessarily for a long amount of time. So they don't worry about the security and then something happens, their, their attention gets distracted, the person goes away, and the data gets left there, right? Yeah. So that's sort of a long-winded explanation of a little bit of my background and sort of sort of tying that back into some of my interest in privacy. You know, this is without a doubt, and I mean this, Cam might beat me up for this, maybe he won't, but my favorite question on the show without a doubt is tell us about yourself. And we intentionally never lead the witness with that question because in just that brief time, I've learned a couple of things about you that, that have helped me understand a little bit more now about some of your work. And it's just even opened up even more questions. You, you are a data privacy researcher and you know I, I, I run research uh, as well here too. And, uh, and the data sets that you have been putting out starts making completely more sense. Like you, you're obviously very comfortable with data. Um, comfortable in and around it. Can you tell the guests a little bit more, our listeners, if you would, a little bit more about your data sets? Sure. So um, I guess that that's a little bit of a, an interesting story too. So like you said, I, I've sort of been working with data for a long time, right? Um, in fact, um, 
I, I had really a, a very large experience doing a lot of data science and data, data research in a previous job when I was uh, the head of content for ChaCha, which is a, which is a search engine, a, um, a text-based search engine. They went out of business about five years ago, but we had a long run for about eight years. We were um, essentially allowing people to text us a question and we would text them back an answer, right? And that sounds relatively simple, right? But once you start answering about 4 billion questions, it gets a lot hairier. Right. Um, and you don't want to do that one off. Right. You got to start actually building data structures on the back end of that. You essentially have to build the back end of Google. Right. Knowledge graphs and all of those kinds of things. Right. And that was really my job to, to build a lot of that content, not the engineering portions of it. Right. But the data management and the ontologies and things like that. Right. And so I really enjoyed that it was probably the favorite, the best job I've ever had. Right. And so after I left there. I sort of stumbled around a little bit I, and I actually landed into a job doing market res, market marketing for a uh, privacy company um, here in Florida. And that's where I really started studying privacy. And then I realized after, I guess, a little bit more fumbling that I really wanted to combine those two things, right? That knowledge of data sets and, and data manipulation and data research with my love of data privacy right? Which had been a little bit nascent. And so now it's really just in the past year really coming together. And I realized, you know what I really want to do? I want to create data sets about data privacy. And so that's what Privacy Plan does now. That's fascinating. And in particular, I know that you have a relatively new data set out that uh, I find very interesting, Um, Data Broker Database. So you've got a data set on data brokers. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear more about this one. So, yeah, I actually just did a presentation um, for the Open Security Summit uh, a couple of days ago on that data set. And um, I've been gathering it now for mm, about nine months. And what I did was I, I scraped all the information from the California... Um, data broker registry and the Vermont data broker registry and uh, the privacy rights clearinghouse data set. Um, and also some data from the consumer uh, um, um, uh, protection, um, forgetting what that word is. Anyway. Yeah, uh, I knew you were referring yeah, to. Yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah. Exactly. The consumer reporting agencies. Um, I, right. Right. And so I grabbed that data and all of this I've added up, I think, to, I don't know, maybe like 800 different organizations that had registered and, and were in that data set. Obviously, it wasn't enough, right? Uh, if we back up for a second, you know, trying to figure out how many data brokers there are out there, um, nobody really knows what that number is. Um, if you actually, if you, if you look around to figure out, you know, what people are saying that number is, um, I think the number that's most often quoted is like, 4,000 or 5,000. If you trace that number back, um, that estimation comes from Pam Dixon. And she originally tossed that number out in, I think, 2013, when she was in a um, Senate testimony. And I think that was just an estimate, but that was like, you know, you know, what, eight years ago, right? So that number has grown a lot. My guess would be it's probably more like 10,000 now. 
Um, but it depends upon how you define data broker as well. So it's anybody's guess really how many data brokers there are out there, but it's a lot more than 5,000. So that's a good question. How is a data broker defined? Is there some type of like regulatory definition of a data broker? Yeah. Um, that's complicated as well. So California obviously defines it and, and Vermont defines it, right? And they've got a legal definition and that has five different components in, in the California definition. Um, what's most interesting about that is that both of those states define a data broker as someone who does not have a direct relationship with the consumer. Wow. So there are some other pieces in that as well, right? But they specifically exempt organizations like Facebook and Google from being a data broker um, because yeah. they don't have a direct relationship. Um, ahead of where I was, that was going to be my next question was, do companies like Facebook and, and Google fall in? And, you, and you're telling me, no, they don't. Wow. That's yeah, awesome. right. Well, they also don't qualify in some other ways, though the, the CPRA um, may change this a bit, right? But the other definition of the data broker is that, that well, I, yeah, that you actually have to sell data, right? So unless that, you know, with the CPRA is now changing, that the consideration may may be part of the definition of a sale, right? Then, then they may be included there. But otherwise, you have to actually sell the data in order to be considered a broker, right? You can't just, you know... Um, lease the information or, you know, use that, uh, advertise to your, your consumers, right. To your user base. So the definition of a data broker is, is really complicated. Um, it's really messy. In fact, if you look at the FTC report from 2013, 2014, um, that the calls for transparency, they actually define three different buckets of data brokers, right. Um, marketers, um, risk assessors, and the third uh, group is people search, right? But they specifically sort of leave out any sort of mention of like social media companies okay. or essentially very large uh, online platforms, which the the Digital Services Act starts to get at. If you if you look at that new European proposed regulation, am I am I just a cynic or? Is what you just described as a, well, not you described it, but obviously you didn't define it. Uh, but that definition of a legal broker feels like it leaves a lot of weird loopholes for things like, you know, some form of transfer pricing, right? Where, you know, a company might have a subsidiary of itself in another state, another country, and it sells or transfers that data to the other entity so that it is no longer the data broker and, and then it can transact. I mean, that just, like maybe it's because I come at these things with a very attacker mindset, you know, it's my inner hacker, but yeah. that just, that just seems completely ready for abuse. Yeah, it is. It is ready for abuse. And there's really no enforcement of that stuff any either way. I, just, I don't think there's any fines that are defined and nobody's really enforcing the registration of those brokers. But even if they did, I mean, even if you're defined as a data broker, it doesn't really it doesn't really get you much, right? I mean, other than the other than the fact that you may have to register and say, you know, put a, a do not sell link up on your on your website. Uh, I mean, there's really no penalty for being a data broker at this point, right? Um, in fact, uh, if you look at, you know, if you look at what data brokers actually have in terms of regulation, it's it's virtually nothing, right? Uh, the only real 
legislation that's targeted to data brokers is FACRA. Um, you know, and that's only targeted toward uh, credit reporting agencies and specifically to, you know, credit reports, um, consumer consumer reports. But consumer reports, you know, if you, those are very clearly and defined in a very limited way too, right? So if I gather a consumer report on you, for instance, Gabe, right? And it's got all this information about you and, and I want to use that to... Um, decide whether I'm going to give you a job, right? Or decide whether I'm going to give you credit. I can't do that without a lot of legislate, without a lot of rules around it based upon FACRA, right? Mm-hmm. But, right, if I wanted to use that information instead to market to you or decide if I want to, you know, date you or decide if I want to, you know, stalk you, right? Those are perfectly legitimate reasons to use that information that are completely unregulated. So quit hogging all the time, but you've got some plans for, for that data broker data set in particular. I think you, you plan on, on highlighting some of the, the more problematic practices in this space. Anything in particular that you find problem, the most problematic about data brokers today? Yeah, I think the, the real problem is, is this, right? It's that they really take all the data that they gather and it's not so much that they gather the data or that they sell the data. The problem is, is that the data that they create and the data that they grab, it proliferates uh, uncontrollably, right? So if you look at any example of uh, a transaction with a data broker, right? Um, they're going to essentially sell that data to somebody or connect it to some other data. Uh, let me give you an example. So I think this was from the Washington Post where there was a, an organization called Advisors, right? And they had students coming to their website and the students would take a survey for a chance to win $10,000. So they'd give up some personal information, right? Advisors would sell this information to a data broker called ALC. ALC would then take that information and they would enhance it through Experian and through another organization called uh, Ethnic Data, right? And then all those, all that information would then get sold to a marketer who could target the student for uh, a couple of different reasons, right? But what happened now, right, is that you had the student who gave up their information to one organization, but now five different companies, right, have copies of his information. So the problem isn't so much that that he gave up his information once. The problem is, is that five companies now have that information. And if you multiply that kind of transaction all through the, you know, the rest of our economy and all the other transactions that we do, you realize very quickly that our personal information is completely uncontrolled, right? There's no way you can secure it if hundreds and thousands of companies and data brokers have your personal information. That's probably, yeah, I hadn't really, I really puts it, I, I guess I probably was a bit naive in just assuming that some of the current privacy regulations on the rise were, were at least somewhat aimed at uh, addressing some of these issues. Um, I'm hoping you're going to tell me yes. No, 
You know, I mean, that's the answer I want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's been there's been a few attempts. There's like three or four federal privacy regulations aimed at brokers, all failed. Uh, there's uh, been a few state state uh, level or, uh, regulations. Most of those fails failed. Um, Nevada's got uh, a piece of legislation on the table now that's sort of an opt-out piece that's sort of similar to CCPA, but nothing particularly effective from what I can tell. So there's really not a whole lot out there um, that's really going to affect data brokers. They've got a pretty extensive lobbying effort to, to keep it that way. But they do. So why don't we, why don't we transition? Let's move on to privacy on the block. Huh, yeah. Blockchain, that is. <clears throat> um, this seems to be really, really such an interesting, interesting realm right here. Uh, we, we touched on it in the last episode with Gilbert. Um, I think we did more than touch on it, but why don't we dive more into it? Um, there's a lot going on with blockchain and privacy. Um, I know that many, and I'm not sure who exactly, if you know, that's great, but many are pushing for, you know, widespread adoption of blockchain technology for its ability to increase user privacy. What, yeah. what, can, we, what can we talk about there? So, you know, I don't claim to be an expert here, um, but I've got some opinions. And I, I follow blockchain, uh, I guess, peripherally. I guess I've got a, a few thoughts here, right? So if you look at data ownership, um, blockchain enables a lot of things that might help us out where maybe regulation can't. And there's probably a couple different ways you can think about that. Right. So the, the blockchain really gives us some, some hope there with distributed finance, right? Uh, primarily in crypto, but there's a little bit more to it than that, right? Then you've also got the distributed ledger, which is quite a bit more broad and underneath of that. That includes things like you know, NFTs and, and smart contracts, right? But there's also other things like the distributed DNS system that organizations like Unstoppable Domains has been putting out. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they've got things like the, the .crypto um, domains. And that's essentially taking blockchain and creating a whole new DNS structure out of it so that um, with specialized add-ins or specialized browsers, you can go to websites that uh, can't be taken down. So it's not part of ICON. Um, and that's pretty cool because it's essentially a, a privacy-centric internet, right? That's distributed completely, right? Um, it's also got a couple of other interesting uh, features to it now, too, because these guys have, have, have made it so that you can connect those, those blockchain domains directly into a blockchain wallet. So, for instance, if you were to, to register privacyplease.crypto, right, you could tell people that you wanted them to send uh, uh, cryptocurrency to privacyplease.crypto. And you wouldn't have to give them your wallet number or your transaction number, that 80 character you know, yeah. string, right? It's much easier to, to, uh, to transfer funds in that way, much more user-friendly. So some of that crypto stuff is starting to get uh, easier and more mainstream 
with these kinds of technologies, right? But if we bring that back now to, to sort of the data ownership thing, right? What crypto really enables, right, is the ability for you to, to, to take your identity or to take a data set, a piece of data, and encrypt it in such a way that, that you would own it, mm-hmm. that you have control of that piece of data, right? That might be your DNA string, or it might be your profile, right? It might be any piece of data that's associated with you. And there are companies out there that are enabling this, right? Um, Big Token is doing stuff like this. Uh, Oasis Labs is doing stuff like this. There's uh, uh, another company that's a little bit of a different offshoot called uh, Infosum that's doing some stuff like this. A whole bunch of other ones, but those are a few that are at top of my head. And we have the Oasis Labs guys on the show. Yeah, yeah, right. That was Luke, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I really like what they're doing because, you know, they're really saying that, you know, you can take that data and put it into a capsule or, or whatever, whatever you want to call that lump, right? And be able to then um, monetize that and control that data in particular ways, right? And I think that's pretty amazing. And I think that's probably going to happen. Now, whether that takes over the data economy or not, who knows, right? But I think it's it's a viable concept. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to get it mixed up, but this was when we're talking about data that isn't owned by the user or vice versa, isn't owned by the company, but they're able to take advantage of still utilizing that. Well, there's a couple different ways that can work, right? So If if you put data into a capsule, right, you could just give somebody else access to it, and then they would have access to the data, right? right. And maybe that's just saying, okay, yeah, you can have access. Just like uh, if I was to give you access to a Google Docs, right, and then you'd be able to see all the data, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the blockchain can work like that, or it might be that I'm giving you access to the the Google Doc, but you can't actually see the data that's inside. You only get the benefit of what's inside, right? Because it's sort of obscured by federated learning or or some other stuff like that, right? Um, and you can sort of look at identity in sort of the same way, right? So if if your identity was in a capsule like that, right, it might be able to say, okay, um, you're going to a website and you want to log in and the website wants to know if you're a person, right? If you're a legitimate person and not a bot, right? It may not have to know that you're Cameron Ivy. It may just need to know that you're not a bot. And if there's mm-hmm. no way for that capsule to say, yeah, yeah, he's real, right? He's not a bot or yeah, he's a citizen of the United States, right? Uh, or yeah, he's uh, a Facebook member, right? Because he's got some token from Facebook that says he's legit, Right whatever those mechanisms are, then it doesn't actually have to know that it's you personally. That makes sense. I love this fascinating. Going, yeah. Gabe, did you have anything on that? Sorry, I didn't. No, no. I'm thinking that I, I too am very fascinated. <clears throat> I think for me as, as a technologist, watching blockchain find uh, some very practical real world use cases, it's, it's, it's just very very exciting, very empowering. Yeah, because it can, I mean, I, I'm doing research on it. You know, it it's talking about legality 
of blockchain and privacy. And obviously the first one is GDPR, IRS, Blockchain Alliance. Um, there's just a, there's so much more that I thought that goes deep into this. It's there's a I don't know if you know the differences, but I'm seeing private blockchains and hybrid blockchains. What's the difference between that and just a blockchain? Do we know? I I don't know what that definition is. No, it's fine. I was just curious. I would guess it's probably just a, a, a variation. You know, there's there's all kinds of different. Um, well, there's all kinds of different variations of cryptocurrencies. The blockchain's probably the same way. Oh, permissioned blockchains, basically. I was going to say, yeah. The, the the only real difference because blockchains are intended to still have more or less public ledgers, but of course you could you could still restrict who can actually see the ledger, right? Um, private blockchains just have a, a bit more access controls on them. Um, I'm sure there's some differences from blockchain to blockchain and how those access controls are actually put in place. But I think for all intents and purposes, certainly for our audience sake, there's not a ton of difference between us. Like the, the technology stack is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I did, I did notice this is pretty neat with hybrid blockchains. They're flexible to determine which data remains private and which data can be shared publicly. So the hybrid approach is compliant with GDPR and allows entity entities to store data on clouds of their choices to be in compliance with local laws. Hmm. That's pretty cool. That is cool. So let's talk about, I, w- I want to get personal with you. You, you mentioned the, the story in the beginning, you know, kind of how you got to what you're doing today. What was that? I mean, did something hit you personally? Where, where does privacy hit you in a personal note where you're just so passionate about it? Is there something that you went through personally? Um, anything with identity theft? Um, just anything around privacy that kind of just drives this, this passion that you have? Listen, I don't think that it was, it was personal, but you know, back when, um, back, I guess it was maybe about the same time I found that list, uh, from, from Citicorp in, in my garage, I was, Sounds like a movie, by the way. Sounds like I know, right? something like a, like a back, back to the Future. You find these old files that your dad used to work at some company, and you. <laughs> all right, don't steal it. That's our idea. We got yeah. that. We're gonna make a movie out of that. Well, that was like you know around uh, 2013, and uh, I was uh, I was actually very big on uh, on Google Plus. Um, I was I got really big into that social network. I actually had a lot of followers. Um, and I was studying um, uh, identity and reputation, not so much directly privacy, but I was really, really big into this understanding what digital identity meant, right? And I was actually sort of running a forum uh, within Google Plus on that. Um, and I ran across this story, um, data broker selling lists of rape victims, alcoholics, and erectile dysfunction sufferers, right? This was a, an article from uh, Kashmir Hill. And essentially these lists were being sold for a thousand names for 79 bucks. Wow. So for eight, for eight cents, you could find out that somebody's life sucked. Right? Jeez. I yeah. Right? And that just hit me really hard at that point. And that's, I think, when I really said, 
you know what? I got to start looking at these data brokers and figure out what's going on. And I didn't really start researching data brokers at that point, but that's when I realized that this is a problem. And that was back in 13, you said? Yeah. And now it seems like it's Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. You feel it. You can really find that stuff out. It seems like um, on people on Facebook and now you can sell stuff. Yeah. Buy stuff. Well, I mean, now we, we really, I mean, you could probably find out a heck of a lot more from Facebook, right? They let you target on virtually anything. Maybe they don't use those exact words, but you can figure out a hell of a lot about people by what they click on and what they like. True. Yeah. yeah. It's you know, look, look, look at what Cambridge Analytica was able to figure out just from a little bit of Facebook data, right? I mean, they were able That's to true. figure out, you know, what motivated people to, you know, like and hate and yeah you know it is i I think that that tale needs to continue to be a cautionary one and i'm sure there's some that that might get a little oh yeah yeah, how long we can talk about that we're gonna talk about that for as long as it takes is the answer we're gonna talk about that one for as long as it takes that that cautionary tale need not go away anytime soon so yeah it's certainly worth bringing up again you may just dedicate an entire episode to it but there's a lot to be learned from from data sets as you yourself know you've been curating any of them for quite some time uh, is there any data set that has eluded you that's a good question i don't think there's anything that i haven't been able to find yet you know i think that you know, something about data itself too though is doesn't it well, here's something you probably, you don't know, I haven't really talked about it all yet. Um, I actually started working on a project with a friend of mine. Um, there's a, a, a project called the Police Accountability um, Police Accountability Database. I forget exactly what the, the last part is, but essentially it's a group of people that um, got together starting about a year ago, I think. And what they're trying to do is scrape all of the public data sources uh, that um, that the police departments around the, uh, the country publish to grab all of that data and try to just make sure that uh, police departments are being accountable for the stuff that they do. You know, um, there's not very good statistics on police shootings and the accountability for those kinds of actions. And so they're essentially looking to scrape all that data and make it available to journalists and data scientists so that we've got better understanding of what these police departments are doing and, and hopefully that they're they're you know holding their officers uh, accountable for their actions. That's super interesting. And we don't have to get into the weeds here on this topic, but this topic in general is fascinating to me just because... It's just a simple fact that there's bad people and there's good people. And just because they're a cop doesn't mean that they're a good person. Not all of them. And there's a lot of good cops, but it it just, it's coming out more than ever now. That's so that is super fascinating. I'm interested to hear more about that whenever that develops more. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's all just data driven. We're not trying to, we're not trying to tag anybody or trying to get anybody in trouble. We're just trying to grab all the data and put it out there. And that's super valuable though. And there's nothing like that on the market for them. No, it doesn't exist. And, you know, most of the data is in different formats and it's not being aggregated by the, 
the feds or anybody. I mean, some stuff trickles up through the OCR reports that the uh, um, that the uh, FBI puts out, but most of that doesn't have the kind of detail that you need to uh, to really um, do what we want to do. That's interesting. You want to talk about powerful lobbies? Uh, there's there's a lot of powerful lobbies to keep that data out of the American hands. Quite frankly, so. yeah. Well, the feds did try to get that data a couple of times, but it appears as though all those efforts just fizzled out. Tells you something, also, doesn't it? That the feds can't get their hands on that data. Yeah, Maybe right. They send the NSA to go get it this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's right. the problem is we're sending the wrong people to go get the data. Hot so, take. Yeah, right there. Hot <laughs> takes. Hot take. Um, so I don't know if this it relates to privacy plan, but it sounds like it would be in the name. Um, how, how would you go about helping someone prepare for uh, data privacy uh, regulation or just data privacy in general? So uh, that's a pretty broad question. Um, hmm. I mean, I guess it really sort of depends upon what that company is or, or, or what, uh, you know, what their goal is. But generally, I guess I would probably first take a look at, you know, a data map for, you know, whatever their, their organization is. I mean, mm-hmm. where the data, where's the data flowing? <laughs> it's sort of funny, you know, when I, when I, when I think back about data mapping, um, I know that seems like a relatively new concept for privacy folks and maybe, a rel- even a relatively new concept for for in- infosec people, but I actually remember doing that stuff when I was back in college. Um, uh, my degree was in, in organizational behavior, and I remember a couple of classes where we were actually charting communication and data flows of organizations, trying to understand the organization um, by by doing data flows. And uh, so it's really sort of you know. Um, feels so, right. You know, that, that's the kind of thing that you need to do to understand an organization, let alone the privacy, right? Can, can you explain that a little bit further just for the listeners and myself? I'm not going to act like I know exactly what you're talking about wholeheartedly. I know what data mapping is, but um, can you explain that a little bit deeper? Because you mentioned that it's a little bit newer to InfoSec people. Um, yeah, well, so data mapping is essentially figuring out where all the, the data points are in your organization and, and where they they flow to, right? Who has who has them, um, what they are, um, where they go, um, and who controls them, how sensitive those pieces of information are, you know? So, you know, if you've got customer data coming in, you know, who has access to that data? What are all the different fields? Um, you know, are some of them sensitive or are some of them not so sensitive? You know, where's that data being stored? Uh, who has access to it? You know, does mm-hmm. it get transferred from this department to another department? Does it get processed over here? The, you know, who touches all these pieces and where does it flow to, right? Um, and if you start to understand all of those data flows and pieces, you know, does it get parsed out over here? So the data research and the marketing research guys running reports over here and putting it in S3 bucket and forgetting about it, right? Mm -hmm. That's where you figure out where those risks are, right? So once you've done that data map, it's much easier for you to figure out how to do a data uh, impact assessment, right? Very good. I'm thinking this could be a good time to ask that question we always like to ask. 
let's say you're helping an organization or you're part of an organiza- organization and you're about to start a data privacy <clears throat> uh, program and you only had a hundred dollar budget. Where do you, where do you think you would start? <laughs> I know you've heard this question plenty of times, but I wonder if you've ever uh, thought about it. Yeah. You know, I, I saw that on the list and I have listened to so many of your podcasts. I really should have a great answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I probably don't. Um, it's a tough question. I mean, you could, it, there's many ways that you can go with it. You know, I think I would probably say, say I'd spend, and this is maybe a bit of a cop-out, but I'd probably spend all the money on hiring the best privacy people to come in and do the analysis. Because if you know what your problems are, then you've got, you know, most of the problems solved. Well, not all. You haven't got the problem solved. At least you know what your problems are. I don't think that's a cop-out at all. I think understanding is the first step in all of these things. We talk about it in our world in terms of, quote, discovery. But that same word's used in the legal world, right? Like discovery is the first step in that process. Understanding is always the first step in that process. Yeah, no, I, I say that to say totally not a cop-out. I, I appreciate that just starting with the unknown and getting handled on the unknown. How else do you actually know if you fixed any of the things? Yeah, right. Yeah. That's a good point. Where do you see, I mean, in your mind, in your opinion, the way the, you know, you've been around this industry for many years. Um, where do you kind of see that going when it comes to cybersecurity and privacy and legal from a legal standpoint, where do you see things going um, in the next few years? In terms of regulation or or just privacy and security in general? Yeah, privacy and security in general, because I feel like it's still it, it's still very new. And as to why, you know, to Gabe's point when he was talking about Am, uh, Cambridge Analytica, that's it is is everybody's talked about it and talked about it. It's it's still really new. It's still kind of new. It's yeah, it's not going to go anywhere. I think, I think we've got a lot of growth in front of us and I think we're going to have a lot more. Um, I think we're going to have some more events that shape where we end up. Um, well, cause the, I mean, it's, it's, it's written in the way things have gone and the every day, every minute, every second, more and more data is flowing more and more brand new data. And it's, it's only going to get, it's only going to get more complicated. Right. So that's why it's really an, an interesting about the, the blockchain and how that's kind of blown up because that could be very big. That could be. Yep. Well, and you, I think, was it, was your podcast that just came out about uh, data breaches are inevitable or was that somebody else's? Might have been someone else's, yeah, but else's. I mean, we've yeah. certainly covered that topic before. That's that's a reality. I did a I did a I had a presentation at Infosec World uh, last year, although we were we were not physical that year. Uh, that covered this right. I was talking quite a bit about data exfiltration, um, but the start of that conversation began with that breach is inevitable, and we live in a world where security professionals are forced to live with two realities that a breaches are inevitable and that B they still have to do everything they can to secure the environment, knowing that breaches are inevitable. And, uh, it's, it's not, it's not easy to hold two opposing thoughts in the brain at the same time. Um, and 
you know, what one of America's most prolific writers wrote on that topic in particular, that it is a sign of genius that, 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 you know, those that are able to hold those two conflicting thoughts at the same time. And he continues to, to wax on about kind of the, the nature of not being defeated by that thought and using that instead to, to kind of push on and, and to secure things anyway. Um, so no, that wasn't us, but, but I tend to, to hold that same view. And I, I share that view quite deeply, but I think whenever that statement is made, I always feel the need to kind of, you know, go on and, and expand a bit more and mention that, you know, although it is inevitable that doesn't mean we should not strive to make sure that <laughs> right, right? Yeah, like, don't, so don't stop. <laughs> doesn't mean give up. Doesn't right, mean give right. up. Yes, yes. Well, I think I think one of the vulnerabilities that, that people aren't looking at that are gonna they're gonna bite a lot of people in the butt is uh, is is IoT devices, right? I mean, you, I'm sure you know about that that problem. Uh, I saw somebody, I'm pretty sure it was on another podcast, talking about how, you know, even if we're securing the new internet, the, the IoT devices that are coming out, somebody's going to get hacked through, you know, an old security camera that they forgot about that's sitting in, you know, some warehouse someplace, right, that uh, has absolutely no security on it, right, and it's connected to their network and they forgot about it, and it's going to be a major, you know, a major breach, for some company is a ready a privacy nightmare. Yeah. Wearables, I think, may have been the first start of it being a nightmare, um, largely because it was they were small, they were inexpensive, and so many people got them. Right, like not everyone has has uh, IoT devices in their homes. Although I think like a large percentage of people do at this point, right? Between you know Ring devices, Echo devices, you name it, whatever it is. Yeah, wearables. You know, and wearables have gotten so intelligent they can tell you what activity you're currently performing, whether you're running, walking. Bicycling, the it the the general yeah. topic functionality. It is I got one. There you go. It's become an absolute privacy nightmare. And I was in fact speaking to a couple of CISOs earlier this week, and the topic of IoTs came up in the context of uh, privacy and security because there's there's a lot of data coming back from those systems, from those IoTs also, and they're coming back to systems internally to be analyzed, and that's that's creating all kinds of uh, issues as well too. By the way, because I didn't I didn't. Actually, fully quote him. I didn't fully quote him because I was paraphrasing. It was F. Scott Fitzgerald, by the way. And, uh, and he stated that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still remain the ability to function. Does, <laughs> <laughs> however, follow that up almost immediately by saying that one should, for example, be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. And and I'm a fan of, of Fitzgerald in some ways, not so much in other ways, but <laughs> but but again, whenever that topic of the inevitability of, of breaches comes up, I, I like to remind people of that quote that we should be able to see things as hopeless, but still be determined to make them otherwise. That's that's why we certainly get up. That's that's the why experience, right? The protecting mm-hmm. of that what matters most. That's why we get up in the morning. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think on, on the legislation front, if we pivot to that, I think we're going to see a lot of legislation because. You know, it's such a hot topic. And I think you're going to see two different types of legislation. One, you're going to see a lot of craziness coming. I mean, uh, you probably saw the the leaked legislation on AI, uh, Mm -hmm. the European Union. And so you're going to see a lot of 
stuff that, you know, I mean, we do need regulation on AI, but that's probably a little bit of overkill if it, if it goes through the way it's sort of set up now. Um, and I think we'll probably get some state legislation that, that you know, probably goes a step too far um, because people are scared, you know, about some of this stuff that's going on, facial recognition in particular. But I think we're also going to see some legislation because businesses are scared of all the legislation that's coming and they're going to start pushing for legislation, even national privacy legislation, because they can't deal with all the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not just here in the United States, but I think you're going to see it worldwide um, because you know, they, they've got to do something to manage that uncertainty. So we're going to see a lot more regulation, um, whether it's, whether it's uh, complicated and messy or whether it's, you know, more soothing. I, I don't know, but it's going to be a lot of legislation. Now we've talked about this before, Gabe, obviously with a couple of different people on here and this could be good or bad. Right. Um, and I, I might be getting things mixed up, but you can correct me. So we have what CCPA, GDPR, yep. all that kind of stuff. And then where the fear is because the government is always behind when it comes to coming out with legislation or laws or whatever around privacy, that the fear is they're going to try to come over the top and change laws and could make them worse. If that makes sense. It does. I I think what what you're getting at and Jeff jump in, um, I don't know if that is, uh, is what Jeff already touched on, right? Like th- that fear that we're going to be so afraid of, of the future that we're going to over-regulate and, and, and legislate right. ourselves into, into peer restriction. Um, yeah, I think, that, I think that's a real thing to be on the lookout for. Yeah. And I'm not... Yeah, well, I mean, let's, let's put this back to our guys. So where do you fall on the general legislative kind of spectrum. Are you in, in favor of more, less freer markets, less freer markets? And not to turn this into a political topic at all, uh, but maybe more of a philo- philosophical one, right? Like, are you, are you a Marxist? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm actually, uh, I would call myself a free market capitalist, Okay, but other people would probably think that I'm not because I believe that the, that the, the free markets have flaws and that we need regulation to fix the flaws in those markets. But fundamentally, I think the markets are good. I think that we need them, right? And that um, that generally they work. I just think that they have problems uh, that the, the invisible hand can't always fix. So that's, that's my take, right? And in terms of a national you know, versus uh, state-based laws, I think it's untenable to expect that we're going to have 50 different state laws. Um, so we've got to eventually have a, a national law. Yeah. The real problem is, you know what, this, the stick points are private right of action and preemption, right? Frankly, I think we can live with a national law that doesn't offer us a private right of action, yeah. uh, even though I'm in favor of a very strict uh, national law. Um, you know, because of, you know, the stuff I believe about data brokers and, and the problems that we have. But, you know, I think if we funded the FTC well to be able to enforce those rights, I think we could we could live without that private right of action. So really, for me, the stick point is about preemption. And 
it really comes down to how much of preemption we get. I don't think preemption is a black and white issue. I think it's sort of a gray thing, right? You can you can have a little bit of preemption without totally preempting everything. Yeah. You know, the real the real thing we can't have is a is a national privacy law that gets put in place and then doesn't change for 15 years while technology continues to innovate. And mm-hmm. you know, then they just move past all of that and, and totally circumvent it with, with new things. Yeah. Agreed. That's pretty basically what I was getting at. Sorry. Sorry, listeners. That was confusing on my, no. <laughs> I, I, I thought I was following, but I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't want to give you, I didn't want to send you in a bum stare there. Um, here's what I will say on the final topic of, you know, coming down on, on, and what we need to regulate, legislate, et cetera. And you mentioned AI in particular. I think that we are so far behind thinking and understanding about where AI is headed that anything that we might legislate right now would be a complete undershot anyway. You could probably go as strict as you could probably think of right now short of just banning it. And that wouldn't actually do anything. We know that. Like, it'd be funny to watch Johnny Newmont come to life and there's just like, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, but you know, there are language models like GPT three. Well, let's just pick on GPT three, right? Uh, that language model, that ML language model, that uh, is so advanced that the researchers that have developed it and looked into it, like they have some genuine concerns about the largest societal impacts of not just AI, but like that model in particular. And what I share with them is the largest societal impact of AI, period. I do not believe it a stretch to say that the impact AI will have on our society on the whole is akin to the impact the personal computer had on our society as a whole. It, it literally changed everything as we knew it in a very short period of time. Yeah. And I believe we shall see this. And we are seeing the same with AI. We are actively witnessing it. I might be more in favor of, of some kind of frameworks first that just kind of puts, you know, some guardrails on what you can and can't do the same way we do with, you know, with, with research, with, you know, tr- clinical trials or things of that nature. That's a good place to start. Let's start with guardrails. Let's not, let's not just block off the highway exits, but let's put up some guardrails real quick. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually in that, in that camp. Um, what, what I would like to see with AI is not regulations because I don't, I think you're right. I think we, we, can't, we don't really understand it. What, what kind of regulations we need. What I'd like to see is registration, right? I'd like to see people that are creating AI uh, register their AIs and tell us what they are. So we've got some transparency. Um, and then, you know, we can go from there. Um, but I don't think registration's a particularly onerous task for, for people that are, that are going to be reaping a lot of benefits from creating interesting AI. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I think it's uh, some, some dark, deep secret time. How about you? Ah. <laughs> you knew it was coming. It's you know, it's not like it's a shock. It's yeah. I had to think about this one, but, but not for, <laughs> not for very long. I got, I got some good new ones for you. So I want to keep you on your toes. <laughs> We'll start, we'll start easy. We'll start easy. So what's your, what's your go-to order at your favorite restaurant in your hometown? Um, that would be mm, bourbon salmon. Ooh. What's the restaurant? 
Uh, it's called Bonefish Max. Bonefish Max. Yeah. It's like a little, it's a little chain um, here in South Florida. Okay. I know bonefish, but it's different from that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not the same okay. as that. Bonefish oh. is good too, but but this is a different chain. Yeah. Bonefish isn't bad. Uh, I haven't been in a while, but Bonefish Max, I'll have to look it up because I am in Florida as well. Good. So next one. Uh, what are three prerequisites for your personal happiness? Hmm. Um, that's a tough one. I guess I need say privacy. Say privacy. <laughs> <laughs> privacy. Yeah. Um, I don't know about privacy. Um, I need. Uh, I guess I need to have a bit of alone time. I'm. Uh, I'm definitely an introvert. You know, when I when I'm out with people, I can feel like an extrovert, but I'm definitely an introvert guy. I need my downtime, my, my alone time. Okay. That's one. Um, I need video games. I'm a zombie killer. There you go. Do you, uh, (laughs) do you, have you ever played the last of us too? Uh, I not number two. I think I played the first one. Go get number two tonight. (laughs) Is it good? You're welcome. It's, it's terrifying. It's amazing. (laughs) It's probably one of the best stories. The story alone is amazing. The cinematography is fabulous. Even on PS4, it's just, it's a phenomenal game. Go get it. it. Have you, have you played dying light? Yes. That's That's another good one. Yeah. Good game. So two, what's the other one? Um, probably deep breathing exercises. I like to do that. Okay. So meditation or just like, yeah, yeah, I do meditation. Uh, I do some Buddhism. I do I do breathing exercises. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that stuff is good. I my mind runs, man. I don't know if I I can do it. <laughs> I, I got a blanket. I practice the first tenet of Buddhism every day, li- living that that uh, that suffering that is the existential dread of, of waking <laughs> up in the morning. <laughs> I actually I actually have a little little mantra I could share with you guys that I think is pretty cool. Please, it's uh. It's four steps. Train your body. Sorry, mm-hmm. train your mind. Train your body. Respond with kindness, and move forward every day. I like uh, that. That's good. It goes in the show. We'll notes. share that in the yep show notes. Yes. Read my mind. Yes. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Um. Geez, I don't know. I started playing golf recently. Yeah. Uh, that was sort of new. You know, I've never done that alone and I've always wanted to do it because I feel like it would be a good, just kind of escape, be out there in the nature and just hitting balls. Just Yeah. <laughs> I'll live a golf course in nature there, Cam. I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, there's, there's plenty of nature. If there are Florida golf courses, that's true. It's, it's Florida, yeah. There's gators. There's a. There's everything you want out there. Giant squirrels. <laughs> Kevin Hopkins, you might find him out there too, just slicing away at things. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy it. It sucks because I, I I was a baseball player, but I do enjoy. I think I'm decent at golf. It's it's the one good hole that you have that brings you back. You well, can have 17 terrible holes and then one good hole, and you're. Absolutely. Well, if you got the baseball swing, you can, you can modify that to a golf swing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, what's your, what's your biggest pet peeve? Um, I think it would have to be something with drivers, you know, Florida drivers are definitely the worst, right? Oh gosh. Um, (laughs) probably, probably drivers that sit in the left lane and don't drive fast enough, but, uh, it could be, it'd be any, any number of driver foibles. I've, I've gotten really good about, about, but trying to practice some deep breathing exercises in Buddhism as I'm, as I'm driving, but I used to be really intolerant. So <laughs> it's very, I, there's something about it where you're in a car, the anger that comes out of people that probably aren't even angry people. It's amazing how angry people get in their vehicles. It is fabulous. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I see it happen. And, and I know I, I just anger people, even though I don't need to. Like somebody gets mad at me in the road because I do something by accident and then, and I just sit there and kind of like, I'm just amused and chuckled and it makes them even madder. <laughs> I don't mean to get angry. Just, I can't fathom. It's so, so like angry. Like, like I'll give you a quick example. Like one time I, I kind of, I may have cut this gentleman off uh, inadvertently. I was in a new neighborhood and I was lost and I tried to explain him. Like I rolled my window and apologies. Like, I'm so sorry. Like I'm in a new area. Like, you can't tell me that's never happened to you. Kind of gives me this like, yeah, you're right. And I'm like, yeah. So what are you getting so angry about? Like, simmer down. <laughs> just relax. It's so angry in your vehicles, man. Just calm it down. It's true. Life's just a little too short to be walking around that angry. Whew. That's it's true. Yep. So uh, I think I used to be that guy or or one of those guys, but I, no longer. So I think I've uh, I've evolved. I, I guarantee you, Gabe has gotten mad at one point in his life while driving. But you you grew up in New York, right? Or you were at least there for many yeah. years. I don't yeah. think you did oh, you drive not, at all there? I'm not suggesting I didn't get mad there. I mean, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're too, all guilty of it. I too did not look look terribly good getting mad. It's like, okay, was that worth getting mad for? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that worth punching my my steering wheel five times repeatedly and breaking my hand? <laughs> right. No, that wasn't worth it. And then accidentally honking the horn. Yeah, driving in Manhattan will do you like you you will. The thing about driving Manhattan is you will at first get very angry, but then this kind of calm washes over you after a couple of years. It's like it's like that cabbie callus. You don't even even feel it anymore. I I love the way uh, like cab drivers or even Uber drivers drive up upstate New York. They 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 drive insane. Just. In and out, weaving, just I'm riding with them is super fun. <laughs> Hold that thought and talk to me after you've gone to India and or Turkey. <laughs> oh, and or Turkey. Especially okay. Turkey. That's a different game, I know. It's not. I've seen know, videos. Turn signals are a suggestion, really. <laughs> you know, I actually lived in Turkey when I was uh, real young. I was like six. And I can remember the driving in Turkey. It oh, was yeah. crazy. Oh, I am scarred forever. I thought India was bad. And I was like, okay, nice job. Go to Turkey. (laughs) Jeff, what is, what is one question you always secretly wanted to get asked? In a podcast or just normal? Just in general. Wow. Um, I know that's a weird one, but. I don't know if I have an answer for that. I can't think of it. Stumped them. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that would be. And what's your favorite drink? Mm, I'm a um, I'm a large cold brew black guy. 
Nice. I I dab in cold brew myself. Oh, it's hard not to. That's rocket fuel. You boys are hats off. I get I have cold brew with espresso sometimes. Oh, 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 it gives it a better taste. That's dangerous. I, don't know. I, I like to look <laughs> after that and see how that. Uh... I like to pump myself up. I don't know. I have a <laughs> I have hot coffee in the morning before the gym, and then throughout the day I'll have some cold brew. And uh, now I've been topping it off with GT's kombucha. Shout out to GT if you guys want to be a sponsor of ours. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> GT's kombucha. <laughs> Love the rose flavor. If you want to ship a carton of two our way, we'll take them. <laughs> you know, well, I Jeff. I have to say, you know, the, the the Starbucks cold brew is pretty amazing. I, I never really drank cold brew until I tried that. And it's amazing. I, I don't usually get the Starbucks stuff now. I, I get cheaper stuff, but that's what, that's what sold me on it. Yeah. I usually get Dunkin' now. Dunkin's but, way cheaper, but I know what you mean. Yeah. But the Starbucks is better. Oh, man. Caffeine. Strongest drug in the world. Love it. Well, Jeff... Pleasure, man. We really, really appreciate you again for what you've done, what you do, what you did for the privacy community and for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time and I hope to have you back in the future. This was great. Really appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure to have you on. You, my friend, are welcome back anytime. Uh, I'm looking forward to some more of those data sets. Uh, absolutely love seeing the work you did there. Knowing knowing uh, kind of how you dig in the data sets, I'd love to make you an offer. I have some raw data from a couple of other uh, research projects that uh, if you'd like to, to dig into and maybe find some insight and correlate with yours, um, I, it's all, there's nothing in there that is of a sensitive nature, you know, that uh, that I would be sharing. Um, I'd love to invite you to, to pour over that and maybe, you know. Yeah. 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 Dig, Definitely dig, interested. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Thanks again, though. I really appreciate it. This was fabulous. Wonderful talking to you, gentlemen. Right on. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week. And to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I, I know that there are millions of other shows, and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend. Have them tell their friends. And then make, maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ, can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week. Peace.